afternoon, everyone. We are in Micah chapter 5 this morning. If you're struggling to find where the book of Micah is, if you're using a church Bible, it's page 934. If you don't have a church Bible, um, if you find the start of the book of Matthew and count back about 20 pages, I'm not sure how helpful that is, but uh, try that and you should come to the book of Micah. I've put, um, I've put most of the reading on the screen apart from the end of verse 5, so... Um, as you're trying to find the book of Micah, um, let me just give you a quick update in terms of Paul Taylor, who you remember is coming from St. Helena. Um, there was, um, because of the new year and flight difficulties, we couldn't get them over the start of January. So they're coming definitely the 5th and the 12th of February. The flights are booked. They're booked into the Patterson B&B to stay. They're definitely coming. Paul will be preaching on both the 5th and the 12th of February, so keep those dates free. On to today's passage, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And it's under the title, A Promised Ruler from Bethlehem. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is led against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. Well, we're continuing this morning our series on the Messianic prophecies. And just for some context in the book of Micah, let me just give you a little bit of information about it. Um, it was written over 2,700 years ago, so between the years of 735 B.C. and 700 B.C., and this prophet Micah, he lived during some uh, familiar kings. The, he lived during the reign of Jotham, King Ahaz, and I'm sure you'll have heard of King Hezekiah before. Well, that's uh, when Micah um, was living. And if we had a time to read all of the book, we would have, have read that Micah prophesied many times about the, the fall of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem. And he, this prophet Micah, he, he, continually, he continually prophesies against the rulers of the time for their sin for trying to mislead God's people and exploit them. In fact, when Micah was living under King Ahaz in 2 Chronicles, uh, King Ahaz openly worshipped idols, and it says in 2 Chronicles that he set up idols and images of foreign gods and committed abominations by worshipping by these gods. And so that's the context of our passage this morning. It's at a time of God's judgment for the Israelites. The Israelites... I'm sure as you read the Old Testament, you realize that the Israelites sin time and time again, and God constantly judges them, trying to bring them back to himself. And that's what's happened here. In verse 1, we'll see there's that word siege. And then later on in verse 1, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, if a ruler in ancient times was struck on the side of, of the face, it was a, a, a sign of disgrace. It was a sign of defeat. It was a sign that the Israelites were, were defeated. There was no fight left in them. This is a defeated nation. 
And so it was with Israel and Judah at this time. They've been, they've been shamed. They've been scorned. They've been shamed because of their sin. And they've been shamed by the other, by the other nations. At this time of great difficulty for God's people, at a time of, of God's judgment, we break into this passage in Micah chapter 5. And almost from nowhere, you see this prophecy. In verse 1, it's talking about striking Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And then it just seems to dive into this, this prophecy that talks about this ruler who's going to be born in, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Micah tells the readers the name of this town that the Messiah is going to be born in more than 700 years before it actually happened. As we go through the Messianic prophecies, you'll realize that sometimes the verses appear out of the blue, don't they? There's verse 1 talking about uh, God's judgment. And then verse 2, almost from nowhere, you see that God promises a Messiah. So how do we actually know that this is a messianic prophecy? How do we know that verse 2 is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and not someone else? How do we know that? Well, there's actually there's two very important passages from the New Testament that the Jewish people themselves believed that pointed to the fact that Micah was prophesying about the Messiah. In John 7, 41, now, now this is said by the Jewish leaders. They're having a discussion. And this is said by Jewish leaders who weren't followers of the Messiah. They would never believe that Jesus was the Christ. And this is what they said in John 7, 41. Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? These Jewish leaders, people who would never accept Christ as the Messiah, acknowledged that Micah's prophecy was that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. In the second passage, this is a passage that's read out nearly every Christmas morning from Matthew chapter 2. You've got the wise men coming from the east, and they come to King Herod, and Herod asks him, well, where is he going to be born, this king of the Jews? Where is he? And the wise men, they answer and said, they, they quote from Micah chapter 5, actually. It's interesting. They reply to King Herod, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. So the Jewish leaders, the non-followers of the Messiah, acknowledged, along with the wise men, that this is without a doubt a prophecy about where the Messiah is going to be born. So we've seen the, the context of when this book was written, at a time of God's judgment, at the darkest of times for this nation, at a time when Israel is sinning and has, has been judged by God. God promises someone who's going to change everything. He's going to change it all. This ruler would be born in Bethlehem. Now in Micah 5.2, just to the start, Micah uses two names for the same town. He uses the name Bethlehem and he uses the name Ephrathah. Those two names are actually the same place. It was originally called Ephrathah and then it would be called Bethlehem. By the time King David was born, it was Bethlehem. And here Micah uses both words. You'll see in this prophecy that there's, Micah's always making a link between King David and the Messiah. And this is one of them because David in 1 Samuel 17, King David's called an Ephrathite. He's born in Bethlehem. And so Micah's making a point that the Messiah that's to, co the, the Messiah that's to come will be born in the same place as King David. But also the Messiah to be born will be part of the line of David. So we've just got two points this morning, not three, because it's a long introduction. But our, our first point is just simply the glory of God in this passage. And that's in verses 1 
and the very start of verse 2. The glory of God in this passage. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among the clans of Judah. Why does Micah use that wording? Though you are least among the clans of Judah. Why would Micah bring attention to the size of the town? It doesn't seem relevant, does it? It doesn't seem like it's important. Bethlehem was a tiny town at this time. It was, it was small in size physically, and it was small in size politically in terms of its influence. There was nothing remarkable about it. There was no human reason why the Messiah should be born in, in Bethlehem. Apart from King David being born there, there's nothing significant about Bethlehem. It's small, it's tiny. When Joshua, in, in Joshua 20, Joshua divides the land of Judah into, into 115. And out of, out of, well, sorry, he doesn't divide it into 115, but he divides up the land. And the names of the towns and cities are listed. And out of 115 towns and cities, Bethlehem isn't even mentioned. It's small. It's tiny. There's no reason why the Messiah would be born there. Yet God chose somewhere insignificant. It's in his character, isn't it? To choose the least and the smallest. Back when, when God blessed Isaac and Rebekah with two sons, You've got these two, two men. You've got uh, Esau and you've got Jacob. And you've got Esau, this, this mighty hunter, this muscular fighting man. And you can almost picture this hairy hunter holding up a deer that he's caught. What a magnificent choice to lead God's people into battle. That's what you might think. And yet God chose Jacob. Someone who was weak. Someone who was afraid. Someone who was favored by his mother. God chose a mummy's boy over a mighty hunter. When God, chose the, when God told the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse, he says, look, go to Jesse and select a king from among Jesse's sons. And the prophet Samuel, he goes along and he saw, sees this firstborn, Eliab. He's broad-shouldered, he's muscular, he's the most handsome man. Was that the man that God had chosen? No. But Samuel works his way down. He, he works down to Abinadab and then to Shammah through all of Jesse's sons until he finally comes to this little puny insignificant shepherd boy called David and that little boy is chosen as the king over all of God's people the Israelites all through scripture we read of God choosing the weakest of things the the puniest of things the things that other people despise and this was the case with Bethlehem the smallest of towns the least of towns why would God choose here of all places because just like God did with Jacob, and just like he did with David, he chose the least of people and the least of places so that all the glory would go to him. God acts for his glory. He chose the, the youngest of sons to defeat a mighty giant so that God would get all the glory. God chose the littlest of cities. He purposed that there was no room at the inn or the the, the guest house, so that no innkeeper could glory, look, he stayed at my house. God repeatedly shows us that he's not the least dependent on human greatness or achievement. The almighty God has no need of us. He's no need of a great man. He's no need of a great city. God acts for his glory alone. He's wonderfully free. And here in Micah, he contrasts the littleness of the town of Bethlehem with the greatness of the ruler 
that's going to come out of her. And so God uses our littleness. God could choose the strongest. He could, could choose the wisest. But he normally doesn't. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And then it finishes so that no one can boast before him. As we look around church this morning, what a sorry bunch we are. And yet we're the people that God came to redeem. People that can't boast in anything other than God's grace. And our only response is to give God glory. That despite our foolishness, our weakness, our sinfulness, that he saved us. And if you're a believer here this morning, he set us apart as a people for himself. To God be the glory. He does nothing to attract attention to our accomplishment. He does everything to magnify his glorious freedom and mercy. Now, <clears throat> the name of Bethlehem, it means house of bread. It's a strange name for a, a town, isn't it? Especially a town that's so small. If you cast your mind forward to the New Testament, you'll know that one of the, the names given to Jesus was that he was the bread of life. Now, Jesus wasn't, it wasn't that Jesus was given this title by men. It wasn't that during the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was given out bread, and so he got this title of the bread of life. That's not what happened. He got given that title by God. He, he, he was called the bread of life, not because he gave bread out. He was called the bread of life because he came to be bread. He came to give himself. The bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, th this bread of life was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. Jesus glorifies God the Father by giving himself as the bread of life. We've seen that Israel's going through this period of God's judgment. Israel and Judah, they've turned their backs on God and, and gone serving idols. But God doesn't leave them to it. He doesn't let them continue in their sin without consequence. He judges them. He acts in such a way that he, God cannot look on sin. So he acts in such a way that these people are judged. And yet in that judgment, in the book of Micah, we see God working through Micah to prophesy. And despite the people's sin, God doesn't ignore the sin. God judges it. But despite the people's sin, Micah presents the future hope of this remnant who will be preserved through God's grace for his glory. If you flip over the page just backwards, in Micah chapter 2, you've got an example of this, where Micah presents this future hope of a remnant who will be preserved. Micah 2 verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. So that's the, the first instance. The second instance is in our passage in Micah 5. We see a clearer outline where the Lord will accomplish his purposes through the birth of the promised Messiah. And then in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, we see the third instance when God promises deliverance for his people. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? What a phrase. Who is a God like you who pardons sin 
and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will have again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to your ancestors in long times, in, long, in days long ago. Three times God promises through his grace to redeem his people in Micah. And our response is supposed to be the start of verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who else could preserve a people for himself? Who else could redeem a people for himself? Micah ends that prophecy in chapter 7, seven talking about a God that pardons iniquity. And our response is supposed to be that question, who is like the Lord? If you were to look at the name of Micah, the, Micah's name means who is like the Lord. Micah's name and this prophecy are supposed to fulfill the same outcome. You're supposed to stand back and wonder at God's salvation plan and say, who is like the Lord? We're pointed towards a fair God, as, as we've seen, has, has warned his people of their sin and God promising this rescuer. And our response is supposed to be, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? As you sit here this morning, think about God's glory. It's not, about, it's not in some sort of abstract way like maybe a, a Christmas card tries to portray or, or a shining angel. This is the glory of God who says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's jealous for the praise of his name. He desires our praise. He deserves our praise. He doesn't need it. This is a God who 700 years before the birth of the Messiah promised his son. Was the fulfillment of this prophecy ever in doubt? No. Because God was in, in complete control of where the Messiah would be born. God worked circumstances so that the census wasn't carried out in Nazareth. He, he fulfilled circumstances so that Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem to be taxed. The fulfillment of this prophecy was never in doubt because God will always act for his glory. Let's move on to our second and our last point. The ruler that's to be born, that's from the, the second part of verse 2 to verse 5. This ruler that's to be born, how is he described? First of all, Micah tells us in verse 2 that his origins are from of old, from ancient times. That phrase, from ancient times, could literally be translated from days of eternity. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who's always been. Now, it can be confusing, can't it? The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. That wasn't when Jesus began. He's always existed. He's always been God. He's always been God from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. They've always coexisted. And verse 2 points to it, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Pastor Andrew, before he left, we were working through the book of Revelation. In Revelation 22, you've got that wonderful verse. And this is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning 
and the end. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This ruler, although he's going to be born in Bethlehem, that wasn't his beginning. So his origins are of old, and he's also a ruler. Sometimes as I reflect on what Christmas is like, we focus so much on the fact that Jesus was born that we forget the ruler that he was and is. We celebrate the birth of the Messiah, and so we should. And we praise God for the gift of his son. We at Christmas time think of the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby, and so he was, obviously, when he was born. But it's also important to think of Jesus as the ruler. He was born as a baby, but he had no, one, no beginning and no end. He's God himself. Who else does Micah tell us this ruler will be like in verses 4 and 5? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. He will shepherd his flock. The language, as I said, there's a lot of pointers, a lot of parallels between King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this one who's going to be born in Bethlehem is a more perfect David, a better David, a new David. Rather than being a leader prone to sin and being prone to being led astray, this is a new sinless leader. The prophecy and the, the link between King David was supposed to, to show the Jews at the time that this is the Messiah linked to King David. and says they will dwell securely. They will be great to the ends of the earth. When I, I read of Jesus as the great shepherd, often when I, I think of a, maybe a specific title for the Lord Jesus, it gets my mind wandering on to different titles for the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure if you're the same. But you've got in this, in this passage, you've got the great shepherd. But one of the, the titles that I love is that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But those titles don't go together, do they? One, he's a shepherd, and the other, he's a lion. It doesn't make sense. The two titles don't match. A lion will kill a lamb. Bear with me, but in, in the book of Revelation, when, when John is, is in tears because he sees that no one's able to open the scroll of God's judgment, one of the elders in, in Revelation 5, he says, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the true ruler and the one who's able to open the scroll. And yet it's not his fierceness as a lion that makes him worthy to open the scroll. The lion has triumphed because he became a lamb. This shepherd, this one who will look after his sheep, this one who's looking after us this morning, triumphed because he became a lamb. It's got nothing it's got the gentleness of a shepherd and the might of a lion. But his worthiness to do it is because he became into this world. He was born in Bethlehem, and he lived this perfect, sinless life. What a, what a picture of a ruler that Micah gives us. Someone who's able to shepherd his flock, but is also a lion. Able to stand and shepherd. He's not looking after the sheep from a position of weakness. He's not sitting down. The shepherd in the passage, he's standing up. He's aware of where his sheep are. And this is the shepherd that's watching over us this morning. 
Let's let our hearts and minds focus on the greatness of our shepherd. And some more, more modern Jewish historians, they would argue from this passage that this prophecy is not about the Lord Jesus Christ. They point to, to verse 2, that phrase, that Jesus will be one who will be ruler over Israel. They point to that phrase and argue that at no point did Jesus rule over Israel. That's what they say. But Jesus answered that challenge himself in John 18 when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. They say Jesus wasn't the Messiah because it was Israel that put him to death. And yet Jesus again confronts that argument head on. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So it wasn't that Jesus wasn't a ruler over Israel. It was just that he wasn't recognized by the Jewish leaders as someone who was a ruler over Israel. If the Jewish leaders had have been looking for a ruler over Israel, if they had genuinely been looking, they would have seen a ruler over the winds and the waves. They would have seen someone who cast out legions of demons. They would have seen, if they had have been looking, they would have seen someone who cast out sickness. If they had have been looking, they would have seen someone who spoke and the dead were raised. If they had have been looking, they would have seen Jesus, the ruler over Israel. In fact, Jesus, the ruler over this world, who defeated the prince of darkness. He most definitely is the ruler over Israel. Verse 4 tells us his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. There will be no pockets of resistance unsubdued. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm almost finished. There's tons of cake out the back. Please stay for a cup of tea and a bit of cake. Please do. Absolutely loads. I don't want cake for lunch tomorrow, so please, uh, please stay. I'm almost finished. He will also be our peace. In verse 5. He will be our peace. He was their peace when the Assyrians came into the land and under Hezekiah were liberated. But the Lord Jesus Christ is a greater peace. A greater peace because he's this sacrifice once for all. He accomplished this greater victory. And so I suppose as we finish up, we've got a simple question to think about this morning. Is he your peace? It's a simple question. Are you resting in your salvation? John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I, leave, uh, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I you. And later, the Apostle Paul would write, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What a key verse for us as Christians as we approach Christmas. Maybe... As you sit here this morning, you're thinking, if I was to say the words that there's just six weeks to Christmas, does that make your heart skip a beat? Do you think of all the things that you have to accomplish before Christmas time? Deadlines, presents, whatever. What a key verse for us as Christians. Let the peace of Christ 
rule in our hearts. It's not just that this ruler from Bethlehem brings peace. He is peace. Let Christ rule in your heart as a believer this morning. In your decisions, in anything that comes up, let him be your peace. So just as we conclude, what does the book of Micah teach us? It obviously teaches us that um, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and so he was. But it also teaches us that God doesn't need us for his glory, but he does desire us. As we consider this morning the glory of God and the ruler that's to be born in Bethlehem, what's your reaction? Are you falling at the glory of God in reverence? Are you falling at his feet in reverence, acknowledging that this is the chosen one? We've just come out of the Halloween period. One of the questions I hear Christians ask sometimes is, can a Christian redeem Halloween? You've got a, a festival that's so dark. Can you make it into a Christian festival? Can you celebrate it the right way? In a similar way, I've got Christian friends who are asking the question, seems strange to it, as I say it. They're asking the question, can a Christian celebrate Christmas? They're asking that because it's a celebration at the minute that's focused so little on Christ. It's focused so much on gifts, on money, on tradition. Can a Christian take part in this celebration of Christmas? How can we show a world that isn't interested in the true meaning of Christmas how we do it differently? I have friends that say we shouldn't celebrate Christmas as Christians. I don't get the argument, to be honest, but I believe Micah has the answer. Because God has told the truth. Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. If Christ has come, God is true. And in this prophecy, we see the glory of God and this wonderful ruler that's born in Bethlehem. If our Christmas focuses on those two things, the glory of God and the ruler from Bethlehem, it doesn't matter how non-Christians do Christmas. It doesn't matter. We do it right. That's it. It doesn't matter how non-Christians celebrate Christmas with leaving out the true meaning. Because if our focus is right as Christians, focusing on the glory of God and this ruler from Bethlehem, it doesn't matter how they do it. The Bible commands us to be salt and light. Is there a darker place for the light to shine than Christmas when people have lost the true meaning of it? What a wonderful opportunity for us to do things differently by focusing on the glory of God in this ruler. If Jesus is the ruler of your heart, how will you do Christmas differently from the world? Now is the time to think about it before the panic. How will you do Christmas differently? Will you focus your heart now on the glory of God and this ruler? This be those who celebrate Christmas, not as the world does it, but be those who acknowledge the glory of God and this wonderful ruler who was born in Bethlehem, exactly as God had promised. Let's pray. Almighty, infinite Savior, Lord, we bow before you. We thank you that you're faithful to your promises. We thank you that in the book of Micah we see the glory of God fulfilled in the promises of God. We see not just in the, the prophecy itself, but in the name of Micah, pointing towards the glory of God. Lord, we can have just one response as Christians, just falling at your feet, worshipping you. 
is the great I am, the one who's from eternity past, the one who's faithful to his promises then and is faithful now. Lord, I pray that you would help us even now to, to purpose in our hearts to get the meaning right, purpose in our hearts to follow Christ as we should, acknowledging your glory and acknowledging this great ruler from Bethlehem. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.